Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 209. In this episode, we're talking about domestic and family violence trauma with Erica Hammonds. Erica Hammonds is Associate Minister of Formation and Training at St. Barnabas Broadway in Australia. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Judd and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. This is such an interesting conversation with Erica Hammonds. I really appreciated her reflections on domestic and family violence. And um, for me, the thought that this arose out of her own instances of pastoral care was just such a beautiful way of thinking about how she saw a need and really sort of resourced herself to be able to address it. And it's just become this like, I mean, spectacular ministry. Yeah. What struck you, stuff? I think that's totally right, Madison. I think that what will be apparent to listeners is that Erica's thinking and work in this space is deeply wise and really insightful, and that comes from on-the-ground experience. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's it's such a gift um, to the church communities that she's a part part of. Um, I think that some of the the work that she's done, um, particularly in how to respond to disclosures, is really insightful in 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 that you know um when when someone is disclosing you know something horrific that they've experienced um to you um even her, her her articulating that sometimes some of us will want to jump in and and insert some control um over a situation which is wildly out of control and so wrong and so just being mindful of your own tendencies in that is really helpful and I think that Erica's um, naming both that that interpersonal dynamic, but also the structural things that are at play in church communities that can make disclosures um, easier for people. Um, I just I think that her work is amazing, and I, I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciated um, how much sensitivity she offered, while also just being so practical and thinking about like here are various steps that you need to take. And here's how to think about that in terms of like how you carry yourself and all of that. And there wasn't as much conscious language around trauma and trauma theory and everything, but I definitely heard so much in her reflections that were obviously trauma informed, but also had resonances with some of our other conversations. So I really loved it. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Also, if you appreciate what we do here at the Two Cities, please consider joining our Patreon community to support our work and receive bonus content. Look for us on Patreon, follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Erica Hammonds. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
I wonder if you could just get us started by introducing us to your work. What are some of the ways that you work with domestic violence trauma and some of the things that you find to be important in your work? Yeah, well, um, I'm an Anglican minister uh, in the city of Sydney, and um, part of how I came to be doing domestic and family violence work was just by coming across it in my pastoral work as a minister here. Um, Our context is that we have a lot of young adults who come to Sydney to study, and as a result of having left their family environment, often they're grappling with what their family environment was like for the first time. Um, And so as a result of that, um, wrestling with the things that were harmful or not not that healthy. And so as a minister, I came across that quite a bit and started to explore what that could be and and what we needed to do um, from a pastoral point of view and from a a church point of view to care for people who were um, making sense of their experiences So that's partly how I've come to be working with people who've experienced domestic and family violence, but alongside that, um, I helped to set up a domestic and family violence justice team or support team with a Christian uh, social justice organisation called Common Grace here in Australia, and that led to, I guess, thinking about it from a more structural, cultural um preventative and responsive point of view so taking it kind of from the personal one-to-one connection and thinking about that more broadly as um a structural issue for the church to to address um so that's some of the work that I've been doing been seeking to resource churches to respond well um to recognize the impacts in their church to recognize the sorts of factors that can lead to either abuse happening or it going undetected um, and uncared for. Um, And then also trying to do some of the prevention work that might help create a different kind of environment for people in the future. Thank you. Could you say a little bit more? So the terminology that we have been using is domestic or domestic and family violence. Could you help us to know what falls within that category? A lot falls within that category. Uh, And depending on kind of what territory you come from and um, the legal definitions will be worded slightly differently, but it encompasses uh, the domestic and family violence kind of realm encompasses intimate partner violence. Um, It encompasses violence that happens between people in intimate connections. So that doesn't have to be people in a, a married or a de facto relationship um, it doesn't have to be a couple necessarily. It could be anyone who, um, by virtue of potentially living together or having close relationship, um, experience violence. And that's usually because it's the intimacy that, um, creates the grounds for which violence can be enacted against someone. Um, family violence, uh, the inclusion of that in the title is intended to en- encompass things like sibling abuse, elder abuse, child abuse, and abuse by children towards parents. So um, can be helpful to think about that as kind of multidirectional. Um, and whereas I think sometimes when we say domestic violence, we think about violence occurring between um, cohabitating partners. Erica, when these students first arrive um, at your church, um, 
into Sydney, what are some of the the characteristic features that when they're starting to unpack what what they've what experiences they've come from, what are some of the dynamics and and what are some of the flags that they start to realize, oh actually maybe this wasn't a healthy environment that I've come from? It's really a multi-stage process and uh, it often starts um, quite indirectly in in terms of how they feel about themselves and how they feel about their participation in church and in community. Uh, so some of the ways that I've observed it um, have been that I've, I've part of my role is that I mentor leaders, particularly um, female leaders. And so Part of my job is to equip them for being leaders in their particular ministry context to talk through the different challenges that they're facing and um, equip them with the sorts of skills um, and resources that they might need to, to do that, those sorts of roles. And part of talking about that, inevitably you, you start talking about things like feeling vulnerable um, or feeling um, ill-equipped, um, lacking confidence. And... Often I found as I've dug into those sorts of things with women, um, we've uncovered that the source of that lack of confidence is not lack of capacity. It's that they've come from an environment that's underscored that. Um, and so one young leader I met with um, was abused by her boyfriend. Um, he gave her lists of things that she was doing wrong that she needed to write down um, and keep on hand so that she wouldn't forget them because there were so many of them. Um, and she, I only found out about that part of things very late into our mentoring time together. What emerged in the beginning part was just a lack of confidence in her own leadership. And for me, part of that was bewildering because I saw her as a really capable leader, but um, also kind of normal because most women leaders, no matter how capable they are, um, you know, don't have a huge amount of confidence in themselves. So sometimes it can start like that, just having conversations about the things that they're struggling with. Um, and it's only when you develop a little bit of trust um, and quite a bit of time on the ground that you discover that there's more going on. Um, there can be other things that um, I guess, surface as someone is thinking through their experience of their family. Um, it can often be triggered during sermons and services, uh, whether it's um, finding the emotional content of the songs that we're singing to be too intense um, and finding that they need to remove themselves from the environment for a, for a period because they're feeling overwhelmed or they're feeling triggered. Um I often observe it in the posture that they might have if they're in a, um, a meeting with my senior minister or with other key leaders in the church and kind of observe that there's a there's a way that you hold yourself if you've come from an abuse background um, that is kind of, um, it looks respectful in an in a authority context, but it's actually awareness that um that indicates that there's a real fear about what might happen to you in that in that dynamic and when you say posture do you mean just like a relational posture or is that does it manifest physically as well it can be physical um i've, I've definitely observed that um that um i see 
particularly younger women, holding themselves differently physically in those sorts of meetings. Uh, but it is also just relational. It's it's a deference. It's um, not saying the thing that you might have wanted to say or not saying as much of it as you might have wanted to say or um, having worked really hard to frame what you're saying um, to make sure that it's acceptable or that it's believed or that it's taken seriously or that it's framed with um, all sorts of caveating that might protect the um, the ego of the person that they're speaking to. No matter what the character of the person they're speaking to, it would be framed in that way that they don't actually, they don't expect um, to be taken seriously or to be treated as a person of worth and dignity. And so everything that they're doing is kind of protective around that. So Erica, you just kind of described the some of the the marker, the markers of when this kind of abuse might have been happening in someone's life. Could you please unpack for us what kinds of abuse sit behind those markers? And so what are kinds of the what are the kinds of dynamics uh, and cycles and tactics of abuse um, that you've seen um, deployed um, by abusers in the life of people that you've come across? Yeah, so if we're thinking about tactics in particular rather than just kinds of abuse, um, what I, what I would say as a starting point is that uh, it's the, the what I often say is that it's the goals, not the tactics that define abuse. And so the tactic could be anything, and that's part of what makes it difficult, particularly difficult to um, determine or to discern in a spiritual context because it could even be good and right theology. It could be um, good and beautiful practices and values that we hold in a Christian community. Those things can be used uh, by abusers um, as part of furthering their abuse. Uh, But I guess if you're thinking about, okay, what is the underlying pattern of that tactic? Um, It's usually controlling a narrative and controlling a behaviour. And so it's things like using um, a belief that perhaps the person who's experiencing abuse holds dear, um, using that against them maybe to constrain or to control their their behaviour. So it would be, an example would be, um, I once spoke with a woman whose boyfriend said to her, Erica would think so much less of you if she knew that about you. Uh, And what that guy was doing... It's awful. It's really awful. What that guy was doing, though, is utilising the the position, uh, both kind of the um, functional position and also the relational position that I had in relation to that woman against her. Um, so it was a value that she held in some ways. That was like that's a kind of a neutral quality or even a good quality that I had a good relationship with her or that she held me in high esteem. But he utilised that against her to control her in that relationship um, because that was a threat that could hold over her at any time. He could he could he could divulge the information that he said would change my perspective about her at any time. And so she had to live with the the knowledge or the awareness that at any point, if she kind of triggered the thing that would activate that, that um, that that threat could be fulfilled. You know, luckily, um, it didn't change my perspective on her, and you know his threat was empty in that sense. But 
Part of why I give that as an illustration is because when we think about abuse as sort of disparate events, um, so a threat or um, a cutting remark or um, even physical violence, if you think about that as a disparate event and you think about the significance as kind of being located in the event happening itself, you miss the fact that domestic and family violence is creating a kind of an atmosphere or a web-like experience for the person experiencing violence uh, where they have to be conscious of that web all the time. They they never operate outside of that. And there's, um, can I read you a quote actually from a um, an essay about that? I think it could help articulate some of the experience of it. So I'll read this bit out. In a sense, we might say that these other contexts, situations and relationships are not experienced as outside the abusive relationship at all. There is no outside. Coercive control is inherently totalitarian. Um, this author quotes a woman that he met um, while he was working as a policeman. Um, she was a survivor of domestic violence and the way that she described her experience of violence was, I breathe him with every breath I take. Um, and what the author is trying to point out there is that he uses the language of colonised um, autonomy, um, this sense that what the abuser is doing is colonising your mind, your will, your choices, so that every every thought you have, every desire you have and every choice you make is um, directed by, influenced by, either trying to avoid or trying to mitigate the abuse um, or dealing with the realities that abuse creates for you. Um, and so that's when I think about tactics, I think about it from that point of view. It's how is a person creating an environment in which um, someone experiencing violence actually cannot escape it even when it's not um, currently happening to them? That's That's really helpful. And I think that it parallels what a lot of people experience when they feel that they are in an abusive environment, but there's not that like final transgression that like kicks it over the line. You know, they haven't been physically harmed or they haven't had X, Y, Z experience that everyone universally recognizes is like not okay. Sometimes they have, and it's still, you know, not enough. But um, it does make me think about the intersections of this, um, of domestic and family violence with spiritual abuse and the experiences of people in the church. And I, I know you've done some work there as well. And I wonder if you could tease that out a little bit for us. Uh, spiritual abuse is a massive <laughs> topic and it can encompass any aspect of our faith. And I guess part of what makes it difficult is that uh, it utilizes things that we would consider to be essentially neutral or essentially good um, against the person who's experiencing the abuse. So an abuser can take a text, a tradition or a community value and utilize that either to justify their own abusive behavior or to demand um, behavior on behalf of the their victim. And so they can utilize something like um, our belief in God's justice, for example, which one might hope 
nearly every Christian would experience as a positive um, reality that they hold on to um, in trust in God. But um, an abuser might utilize that and say, um, the thing that I did to you because you uh, pick anything, you know, didn't didn't do the dishes, didn't look at me with respect, um, haven't brought our kids up correctly. Uh, that thing I did is me enacting God's justice. Um, and God gives me the remit to do that. And they, they'll probably misuse scripture at that point. That's definitely misuse the scripture if that's what they're utilizing it to justify. Um, but they're taking something that uh, we would value and we would hold to the power, the good power of, um, and they're using it to constrain or to punish um, their victim. What I think is really important for people when they're thinking about spiritual abuse and particularly protecting against it to understand is that all an abuser needs is for something to be powerful and wieldable. Um, in other words, it needs to be valued and it needs to be accessible within, within their reach. Um, and in a Christian community, the things that will be most powerful and most wieldable or accessible tend to be our traditions our convictions and the strength of our relationships with one another. And so the more we hold these things, the more likely an abuser is to utilise them as part of their tactics and the more um, powerful they're likely to be um, in terms of their impact against the victim. The flip side is also true then that the more powerful those things are and the more accessible those things are, hopefully also, um, the more powerful and the more ready our, I guess, response is um, to protect and to heal. But it's important to recognise that the same qualities that um, enable that healing also um, can be part of the doing of the harm in the first place. I know that you've done a lot of thinking about how do you how do you create cultures within church such that these you know, our convictions, our practices, our traditions are less susceptible to being weaponized against vulnerable people. And like, and I know that you've done a lot of thinking about how do we create cultures that are, you know, robust anti-abuse spiritual environments. Could you speak to some of the the kind of um, thinking that you've done on that? So I think it, I think it primarily starts with leaders adopting a posture of learning. Um, I start there usually because the probably the more natural starting point is what can leaders teach um, and how can they shape their communities. Uh, but I've observed, unfortunately, that sometimes that keenness to teach um, has been a little too hasty and it hasn't come with a slow, humble um, thoughtful learning process first. Um, so just, you know, anecdotally, when I've led seminars in, you know, for clergy and conferences about domestic and family violence, I have been heartened to see how people have picked up a message that says this is important and this is urgent and we must act. That's great. It's great that they've picked that up. Um, that's a good takeaway. But when that hasn't also been accompanied by how is this also present in our community? How have I um, 
unthinkingly and unintentionally perpetuated cultures and practices that have either given more space to or permission to abuse? How have I given less space to people who've experienced violence? How have I become more accessible to people who utilise violence than I than I am to people against whom violence has been utilised? Um, unless it comes with that kind of reflective process and that that humble learning process, then I think the teaching can be incredibly dangerous um, and that it can actually underscore harm for people who've experienced violence um, because they know themselves the ways that their leaders have, um, I feel hesitant to use the word failed, but the way that they have um, not stewarded their leadership well in this regard. Uh, so my first my first port of call when I'm thinking about this and how you create a protective culture is for the leaders to learn first, and that's particularly to um, learn about where their gaps are, where their misunderstandings are, where there might be unintentional missteps in either language or practice, even down to things like when I'm in a pastoral meeting am I operating in such a way as to catch that kind of deference that I mentioned earlier, that we might have had what to me feels like a really productive and positive pastoral engagement because the person came to me with a problem and we talked it through and I gave them some solutions and they smiled at me at the end. <laughs> um, none, of, none of that lens is going to help you to identify whether someone actually had something else that they wanted to talk to you about or whether you kind of rode roughshod over their their particular preference for where the conversation went or um, give you a sense of whether the so-called solution that you offered them was something that was actually helpful to them. Um, so all of that requires deep self-reflection and learning, and that's painful to do as a leader, but it's an absolutely necessary starting point. Alongside that learning, I think, um, becoming aware about how power gets used in the church because power is kind of one of the best wieldable tools for an abuser to utilise. You know, the, the dictum, which I find fairly banal <laughs> in at least in my context, is that power is neutral, um, you know, theologically neutral. And I guess um, when I hear people say that, I can understand that they're, they're trying to articulate the fact that um, power is not in and of itself necessarily abusive. But um, that statement is kind of naive enough um, <laughs> that I find it not very descriptive in a church context that power is always being um, negotiated and transacted between peoples and particularly that those of us who are in positions of authority um, and relational power are going to be fairly inured to its impacts um, in a way that the people who feel more vulnerable in our context are not. Um, so becoming aware of how power circulates in your church can be a really helpful um, beginning point as well. And then when you do actually think about teaching, um, I think about teaching against abuse, but not in that, um, again, ra rather banal way of saying, you know, the Bible is against violence. Um, which we would presume that most people would know, victims and abusers alike, um, but demonstrating actually the insidious nature of abuse. Like how is it that that 
that teaching about God's justice could be misused or forgiveness or unity, for example? How could those things be utilised against someone who's experienced violence and how can you safeguard against that in the way that you um, delineate possible and not possible interpretations of texts and applications of texts? Um, So teaching of that kind can be really helpful. And then I think training of key leaders can be another really important step, which I guess is in some ways is a sort of a structural step. It's it's intended to create um, a multiplicity of avenues for people who have experienced violence to seek the help that they need. And my assumption underpinning that is that if your major pastoral care strategy for how you might detect and respond to abuse is people will come to me and tell me. Um, That's fairly inadequate on a few fronts. One is that you're not that available. Like I know as a minister how hard it is for people to find a time with me. (laughs) Um, You know, people, (laughs) to my shame, people mostly approach me by saying, I know you're really busy, but do you have a time to meet? And so anyone who has been abused is automatically going to feel like that's not a step that they can take, either because I'm not accessible or because they don't feel that their their inchoate sense that something is wrong or has been wrong doesn't doesn't qualify for a legitimate appointment with me or with another leader. So if I'm I'm it for them, um, that's going to be a challenge. But it's also because... um, abusers groom so they'll they'll use the the relational networks around them and in a church those relational networks are particularly potent they're like especially valuable for for an abuser um and so it's highly likely that um anyone in leadership will have been groomed at least to some extent by the abuser um and so that means that someone who is experiencing abuse needs people who are not in paid leadership um, to be able to talk those things through. And um, if those people who are not in paid leadership are not given the the tools to respond well, um, that's not going to go very well for them. So it's kind of a multi-layered approach and you could probably dig into any number of those things, but broadly speaking, I think those are the starting points at least. Erica, on that last point of the fact that abusers will groom, particularly those in leadership, uh, what exactly do you mean by that? What are some of the hallmark uh, approaches to that kind of strategy? Yeah, so if you go back earlier to what I said about some of the patterns underlying tactics being controlling the narrative and controlling the behaviour, that first part is really key with grooming. Um someone who's choosing to use violence, part of their controlling of the narrative will be utilising their access to leaders to um, shape the leader's thinking about them so that it's positive and to shape their thinking about the person they're using violence against so that it's negative. Like that's really broadly speaking how it works. So that could look like positioning yourself as um, someone who is trustworthy and key to the to the function of the church, whether it's because you are just like the most faithful leader the church has ever seen. Um, maybe you're the one who's always setting up and packing down the chairs at the end of a service or you are um, chairing the parish council or church board. Um, you're probably going to position yourself um, 
to be fairly central to ministry activities so that the loss of your leadership would feel like a significant loss to the church. Um, You're probably going to talk about the person you're using violence against in excusably negative ways. So, um, oh, she's just, she just struggles to have that gospel heart, you know, that, that put it seeking first the kingdom of God. And, you know, we're working through that. We're praying through that. That, that, wow. Doesn't that sound like such godly forbearance and patience with someone who just doesn't quite have the right spirit within them? Um, but actually that's just, that's a narratival way of saying you can't trust this person, but you can trust me. Um, and it's also bringing, bringing leaders on side, right? Like if that's in some ways, that's a plea for other people to partner with you in the abuse, in, in viewing the, the victim, um, as someone who needs you also to start, um, um, putting spiritual pressure on them. Maybe they're not attending very much. Maybe they're not coming to their Bible study. Again, probably an indication that they are lacking maturity and diligence. Um, so things like that. It's unequal access to relationship. Um, it's it's shaping the way that you are understood or the way that your victim is, is understood. Um, it's... Uh, it's often generating a sense that's it's kind of prodding the ego of the leader. So that that guy that I mentioned um, earlier who told his girlfriend that I would think less of her, he was very warm towards me <laughs> and he signed up for leadership programs that I ran and um, was highly encouraging of me during those times. And until um, this girlfriend disclosed that information to me I thought of him as a warm and kind person it hadn't occurred to me to recognize that he was actually utilizing those moments with me to generate warm feeling towards him that he you know didn't entirely deserve thanks Erica that is that's a really important dynamic to name because it certainly contributes when stories about abuse surface then there's this like two selves kind of thing. Like that can't be true because I've experienced him or her in this way. And I mean, that's precisely why those, those grooming relationships are taking place is to make it so that inevitably when the truth comes out, the person is not believed. And of course, you know, that's such a systemic issue. I wonder if you could help us to think through um, what to do. So, I mean, you're naming a lot of abuse from within the congregation, um, which obviously we could talk like top down as well, but thinking, you know, still in terms of people within the congregation, which is more kind of peer to peer. Um, let's say that those people do approach someone and disclose some sort of abuse, you know, what are some of the the ways to respond well to that, both pastorally and also sort of systemically, like le- almost legally. I mean, part of this is legally. Yeah, that's a, that's a massive question. I might try and tackle it in a few different parts. Um, I guess that first thing about the the two selves bit, I think that's a good insight um, because that's certainly the 
that's certainly in some ways what the abuse is trying to do. They're, they're, they're creating a public self and a private self and um, one narrative of their relationship or their family and then there's the, the reality. Um, and they're also creating that two selves kind of experience of the victim themselves, that they the victim themselves often finds it hard to make sense of who they are in relationship with that person and also who that person is in relationship with them. And putting those things together is like incredibly complex and um, painful. Um, when I think about that from a kind of how does someone hearing those stories and finding that they're discordant, um, what do they do with that? It's a very difficult thing to do, but um, if you can observe yourself having that reaction, the first step is to pause and to say, what's at stake for me as I hear this? What will it take for me to listen carefully and to believe this story and to just recognise that that is a cost to you Um, because recognising that cost I think actually enables you to choose to take on that cost a little bit more intentionally. And so to say um, me believing this story about X person requires me to rethink every interaction that I've had with them and it requires me to feel foolish because I've been beguiled by them. And it requires me also to lose trust in other people with whom I've had similar experiences, you know, like if I've had really positive experiences of that person and now I'm being required to believe that they have been a monster to someone else, then that, like epistemologically, that creates all sorts of uncertainty about the other relationships that you have. It's incredibly destabilizing, but that is the that is the task before you to say that those are the stakes for me. And now as an act of love and care for a Christian brother or sister, I'm going to choose to absorb those costs. Because for me not to choose to absorb them is for me to displace those costs to that other person um, and to say um, they have to bear that dissonance in their own own body, their own self, which is what they've been doing um, throughout their experience of that relationship most likely. So I find that really a helpful thing. And uh, in some ways I kind of carry that mentality with me when I'm in a meeting with someone who's disclosing abuse, which is, uh, whose interests am I seeking to serve here? Um, I cannot be operating in this time um, in service of mitigating my own anxiety, whether it's my own anxiety about discharging my responsibility well um, or whether it's my anxiety about the safety of the person in front of me. Um, I have that that can those feelings and worries can be in the room. They're relevant, but they're not the most relevant thing. They don't get the top billing. Uh, what gets top billing is what this person is sharing with me, what their preferences are, what their articulation of their experience is, um, and what's at stake for them as they share those things. So I, I'm always trying to be aware of those things in part so that I can that I can put them in second or third or fourth place um, in that dynamic. Um, Erica, thank you. I really appreciate the way that you talked about that and just acknowledging that our emotions and responses are important. And so it's not about uh, bracketing those or pretending like they don't exist, um, but it's more about um, allowing the person that, for whom we're caring 
um, to have priority in that moment, which strikes me as being a really important tenet of pastoral care generally. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about some other ways to respond well within churches when you receive these kinds of disclosures. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll talk you through a posture and a process. And I have to apologize in advance for the like the amount of alliteration that's going to be coming your way. But as a preacher, I cannot help it. Like it's Woo-hoo! actually um, so in terms of in terms of posture, what I recommend anyone take um, as a posture when they're caring for someone who's either a disclosing abuse that's currently happening or talking about past abuse is think about yourself as a bridge, not a boss. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, when someone is is telling you about an experience that is by definition overwhelming, you will have a sense of their powerlessness in the face of it and you potentially will also feel powerless as you hear that. And a fairly natural response to that is to occupy the position of boss, which is I'm seeing someone who's powerless. I need to step into a powerful role um, to fill the gap of power here. And so I need to essentially tell them what to do, even if I might catch that in um, you know, fairly gentle language. I need to direct them even, even in the conversation itself, I need to direct them. That's a that's a kind of a boss mentality. The bridge mentality says, I, I am a relevant factor here and I can utilize my um my, I guess, unequal sense of power for the sake of the other to help them reclaim their own sense of power or their own autonomy. And so I can function as a bridge for them towards that. So the difference would be um, someone starts to disclose abuse to me, boss mentality would be to say, stop, 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 go back. Um, I want you to take me through how this all began, which is you can kind of hear the boss framing of that, right? Bridge framing says, I'm hearing I'm hearing that you're telling me something really significant. Can you tell me if we're talking about this in a way that serves you right now? Um, wow. Or can you tell me uh, what I could do that could be helpful here and what I could do that would not be helpful? Do you have a sense of what would be most helpful as a starting point for you? Um what is your body telling you? That's often, that's a really helpful thing. And you might observe to them what their body is telling you. Like, you know, sometimes I'll say to people, oh, wow, as soon as we started talking about that, I noticed your shoulders go up and you kind of crouched over into yourself. I don't want to make you feel embarrassed about that. I just want to observe to you that um, it it seems like this is something that you feel kind of protective about. Is that the right read on that? Um, like if that's true, do you, what do you need in order to feel even just a tiny bit safer as we talk about this? Those are all instincts that in order to survive abuse, a victim has to turn off within themselves in a way. You, you cannot be attuned to your own body and your own will, um, when it's been colonized in the way that that author, um, framed it. Is that just because it's it's untenable to hold those feelings all the yeah. time? It's untenable. Um, it's not 
it's not permissible, like in the in the framing of things from an abuser, their will is the only thing that matters. Uh, their preference is the only thing that matters. Like your preference, your preference is dangerous to you because it it threatens that equanimity that the that the abuser is seeking to set up. So um, you have to turn that off. You have to t- turn off even your kind of like your pain receptors. Like you cannot be attuned to your body's pain when you are constantly in pain because it's um, you you have to function as if what is happening to you is normal because it's been given to you in the environment of normality. The home environment is where we norm. (laughs) And so you have to find ways of setting your body to a different baseline, I guess. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But so part of what you're doing then in a pastoral situation or a peer situation is um, giving someone the space in their own time if they want to to tune into that and see what that tells them. Not everyone wants to, and that's really key because trauma is like profound and not everyone has the space in their day to like go fully into um, the signals their body or their mind is giving them and then respond to that. Um, But if you position yourself as a bridge, you're kind of opening up the possibility that someone can at the very least ask those questions of themselves and that their answers will be respected and honoured by you that you will act in service of those answers rather than whatever answers you might be seeking to provide or that you might see as the kind of natural or logical kind of next step. So that's kind of posture is the the first thing, bridge, not boss. Then in terms of process, again, this is where I have to apologise for the alliteration, but I think of it as... um, a kind of a series of steps which includes self-awareness, which I've sort of mentioned earlier in terms of becoming aware of the stakes, but it's also things like what's my tendency when I'm in an environment um, that is distressing? Like do I do I tend to flee to, to helplessness or do I tend to charge towards it um, to try and take control of it? Um, managing that well in that environment just means recognizing that you might have an instinct one way or the other and trying to hold that a little bit more carefully uh, because again you're asking what's in service of the other person Um, but it can also mean just like we said the person um, not really being free to be attuned to their own body means using your own attunement to your body in service of them and so this is something that I do as well that um, when someone is sharing um, information with me uh, that's distressing, my stomach might churn um, or I might suddenly get a headache, for example, um, or I might realise that I'm clenching my fists. Or, um, and I'll just say that. Like, I'll just say, whoa, when you said that to me, my stomach just went, oh, um, how does it feel for you when you say it? Uh, I guess in some ways I find that helpful because it's not prescriptive. It's not saying you must feel this way. It's just saying I felt this way. And I think it's a safer way of giving someone an object, a more objective sense of, I guess, the, um, the moral quality or the moral weight of the things that they're disclosing to you. Because as I said, the home is where things get normed. And so most people who've experienced abuse will have this dual experience of it as both 
incredibly harmful and horrible and not something that they want and also something that has been justified to them and normalised to them. And so they'll kind of have this integrated um, and complex perspective on those things and uh, are often uncertain even as they're sharing that story whether it will be considered legitimate by someone else or whether they'll have a read on it that says, no, that's actually bad. Um, And so if I can reflect from outside of them what someone's intuitive response to it would be, I don't want to signal that as if it's like more authoritative than theirs, but I do want to say someone else experiences it like this. And I want that to be a potential resource to them to hold on to if they need their own mechanism to understand their own experience. So that sort of makes sense. Like it can, I don't want to displace their own mechanisms for that, but I do want that to kind of resource them if they if they need it. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's like if the, if if what you have shared with me elicits this physiological response of discomfort or even like um being appalled or or grieved and not even my mind my body that validate is is what I, what I'm hearing from you, is that that validates their experience yeah, yeah and that can be that can be an incredibly powerful thing and just as an aside I guess but I think it is relevant um, my own experience when I reflect on my experience of family violence, the trauma nightmares that I have about what I experienced sometimes relate to the actual uh, violence that I experienced, but far more often my nightmares are that I have tried to tell someone about my experience and I have not been believed um, or it's been wow. minimised or there's some kind of hurdle in the nightmare to me, um, to the person understanding what has happened to me, which is, I guess in some ways that is kind of like um, one of the definitions of trauma is not so much what the event was itself, but how that event is interpreted, made sense of, and whether there is, in the words of Gabor Mate, like an empathetic witness to it. and particularly because domestic violence is intended to mislead, to confuse, you need something that cuts through that, that says no, like um, a, a person who doesn't have uh, their own stakes in this sees it for something, sees it for what it is. Mm. Um, yeah, so it becomes, it becomes an anchor point for a person if they, if they need that and if they want that. So the other steps I would say are space, uh, which is even just to fight, to work out whether the space in which you were talking about this thing is actually a space that feels safe and helpful for the person. Uh, and so that can be down to like in uh, in church world, particularly if I'm thinking this as a leader, you often meet with people in public spaces because you think of that as a safety generating thing. But actually, if someone's seeking to disclose something really personal to you that won't feel safe, they don't want to be in a cafe, you know, a table away from another person recounting their holiday to Greece or whatever, um, and trying to share their very painful experiences. Um, and so, again, this is where that framework of am I a boss or am I a bridge comes in because if I'm a boss, I'll name the location that we have the meeting. But if I'm a bridge, I'll ask, where do you want to meet and when do you want to meet? Um, 
I guess that can be relevant even if you're not a leader, that part of what you'd want to be thinking through is um, I sense that my friend has something that they want to share with me and an anxious response to that is to um, to try and catalyze that, to say, I noticed you were upset, let's talk about it, um, which doesn't really respect the person's own sense of timing or urgency. Um, but a, a bridge response to that would be, I noticed, well, I felt like I observed that you were upset the other day. I just wanted to say that if you ever want to talk about it, I, I'd be so happy to talk about that with you. Um, could you tell me if that if you felt like that would be helpful to you? Um, letting them determine the the space that that happens in and the, the timing of it. Um, the next thing I, I I call the slow step, which is basically just slow things down. Like if you are in a conversation where a disclosure is happening or where so, someone is kind of talking through aspects of abuse with you, your mind is likely to be racing, your heart is likely to be racing, theirs is likely to be too. And if you recognise that, um, part of what you can do as a bridge is just to say, okay, do you want to just take a pause now? You don't have to. If you want to keep going, that's fine. But um, my, I'm recognising that my my mind is racing and I'm wondering if yours might be too. Um, and I just wondered if like a pause could be, could serve you. Um, part of what you're seeking to do there is that when someone recognises that a door has opened for them to share uh, something that they maybe have never shared before, there's kind of this sense of like I need to get it all out before that door closes. And, again, that's a really uh, powerless way of thinking about yourself. Um, it says this is my one opportunity and if this one opportunity doesn't go exactly the way it needs to, I will never have the help that I need, which is exactly the way a victim thinks about it because they're used to a way of, uh, approaching life, which is unless I do this perfectly, it will be a disaster for me. And so if you can institute slowness and a slowness that says we don't have to even talk about all of it today, we can come back to this, you can share whatever it is that you want and nothing more, um, but I would, we can come back to this or we have time for this. Um, I think even kind of on an implicit level you're saying the door is not closing. This is this is safety can continue for you, um, and you do not have to communicate your story perfectly or comprehensively, um, and intelligibly even <laughs> in this time. This is not your one time to tell your story. Do you find that people find that hard to believe? Like if if you're yeah. so used to this, like this panicked response, how do I, I can imagine that being such like a whiplash experience of, you know, you're saying that this, this opportunity isn't going to go away, but I find that even, even, even if cognitively I can track with that experientially, I find that hard to believe. Do you find that? Yeah. And also that, um, I think for some, when they've gotten to the point where they feel like they are able to share something, it's like the force of having to ha get to that point and get the momentum to do it is such that you feel like you don't want to waste that moment or um, 
the cost of getting to that point again would be so great that you don't really want to have to um, work yourself up to that again. So I think that's sometimes what it is. So my experience is sometimes, particularly in a sort of a first disclosure moment, that um, it can be quite a jumble and it can be quite a lot of information coming at me pretty pretty quickly. Um, and my my sense of that is because uh, it's just so overwhelming to be in a space where you are opening up that you you feel like you just need to get it all out or you might not you might not ever get the energy or the space to do that again. Well, I guess the next step alongside that is to think about safety and you think about that on, I guess, three levels. One is the safety of the space that you're in now. So, and we've kind of talked about that in, in the way that you hold yourself in that time and the way that you're seeking to re-engender some agency for the person. Um, but it's a, I guess it's a lens that you try and hold in your mind as you continue to talk to someone. Um, how am I continuing to create safety or what what are the conditions of safety for this person and can they tell me? Um then you're thinking about safety for the person presently. Um, are they physically safe? Um, are they emotionally safe? Like are they returning to a relationship or an environment that is going to be dangerous for them? Uh, that's where some of the legal questions come into things and I can't exhaustively give you, you know, what that would look like for every jurisdiction because it is slightly different and, uh, frankly, Sadly, not everything that is um, violent is illegal. Um, and so that's one of the unfortunate realities. But there are obviously some things that are violent that are illegal. Um, and so one of the questions that you might be working through with a person is, do you fear for your physical safety or do you fear for the safety of uh, children or pets around you as well? Um what do you feel that you want to do or need to do to to navigate your own safety in that? That's a really, really complex thing, both for the person who's experiencing the violence and also for you to navigate because you're often trying to hold in tension both the, I guess, the urgency and the seriousness of potential um, catastrophic violence with also the need for time and thoughtfulness and support creation um, to create a safety plan for someone. And those things operate, um, yeah, as I said, in, in quite a tension with each other. And so if there are children in the home, um, most people have, it, well, if you're a church worker, you have a mandatory reporting duty in in um, my jurisdiction um, if you have reason to believe that children might be impacted by the violence you have to report that to the police and so that might be something that you need to talk through with the person who's disclosing abuse uh, but alongside that you'd also be thinking about um, what are the steps that you feel that you need to take to to manage your own safety and that might start by asking how. what are the steps that you currently take uh, because people are always taking steps to manage their own safety and that can look really different in different times and situations. Um, the third category of safety is, I guess, uh, thinking uh, about historical trauma um, or historical domestic and family violence that 
even when a person is not returning to a home environment in which the abuser is present, there are still safety concerns for people, whether that is um, uh, the physical side effects of having been in a violent relationship, so recurrent illness or even traumatic head injuries, for example, uh, those are still meaningful considerations even if you're no longer in a relationship with someone who used violence against you. Um, but it's also in regards to how you now um, see yourself. What are, what are the emotional and spiritual harms that have been done to you as a result of um, the violence you experienced and in what ways do that, does that continue to compromise your well-being? Um, that's a bit that I think we can often miss because the the more present, like current abuse, you know, strikes us with a particular sense of urgency. Um, but my experience working with people for whom the violence is mostly historical is that they carry significant burdens that are still very worthy of attention and care and um, it can actually be in some ways harder for them to legitimate their own care process um, because um, in some ways it's easier just to say, well, that happened in the past um, and I want to move on from it without recognising the ways that they carry it with them. Um, so that's the safety thing. The next thing is steps, which is just to say what steps does the person want to take and what steps are they asking me to take with them or for them? Um, again, I, if you're taking the posture of a bridge rather than a boss, you are asking those questions of that person and you are not dictating them for them. Um, it's important for anyone, I think, if you've been invited into something like that, to have clarity about what they're actually inviting you into because I think you can make assumptions like this person wants me to act on their behalf or this person wants me to follow them up regularly about this thing or whatever. That might not be what the person wants and it's probably a dynamic thing. They might not necessarily know what exactly they're asking you to do um, but they probably have a sense of what they're not asking you to do. Um, and so just opening that up with someone, say, saying you've shared something really significant with me and I, I feel um, honoured that you trusted me with that, how can I honour that in what I do next? Like what, what is going to be helpful um, in terms of how I deal with that information that I have? And they might say, I don't want you to do anything with it, I just wanted to tell someone that's really helpful for you to know because you might have otherwise, you know, enacted a five-step plan for them and that's not actually uh, what they were calling you to do. But also for, for you to say, um, what do you want to do? Uh, and let their answer be one that might sit uncomfortably with you um, because they they might, they might tell you that they don't want to do anything or that... Um, they want to find a way to reconcile with the person who's chosen to use violence against them. And um, it is not your job to tell them otherwise. You you might have um, a moral responsibility to tell them how uncomfortably that sits with you and why, um, but it's not your job to supplant their own thinking and their own preferences. And it's probably far more important at this like vulnerable stage for them to be able to say what they want and for, to have someone else respect it um, for that same reason that you're kind of trying to decolonize the will um, or what would be helpful for them is if they are able to decolonize their will, I guess. It's not your job to do it. 
Um, and then the final thing is self-care, which is just to think about you've if you've heard something um, as painful as domestic and family violence is, and particularly that multi-layered if it's coming in the context of a faith community and a, a shared faith that perhaps you hold with the person who's experiencing the abuse, then thinking about your own self-care is a really critical part of that. Um, and it, it might be something that is easy to miss if you're taking that posture of bridge because, um, it, you know, a, an unintended implication of thinking about y- yourself that way is this doesn't have, it's not legitimate for me to be impacted by this and for me to respond in ways that honour my own care needs is uh, selfish or indulgent or whatever you might think in response to that, uh, that's not going to serve you and it's actually not going to serve anyone longer term. So I've got, you know, more thoughts about what self-care can look like, but I think it's an, it just in terms of answering your question now, the brief response is it's worth thinking through what the impact of hearing those stories is on you um, and finding resources that will help serve you as you carry that. That's really great, Erica. And I appreciate just how many resources you've provided us with and just sort of thinking through how to address these various things. Unfortunately, we probably need to call this conversation to a close, even though there's lots more we could learn from you. Um, but maybe to wrap up, if um, if there are some resources that could be available for our listeners, or are there some things that you'd point them to? Uh, yeah. So. Um, one of the resources that we created with Common Grace is called Safer Resource. So you can find that at saferresource.org.au. It's an attempt to be somewhat comprehensive um, for anyone who is a Christian or seeking to care for someone who's a Christian who's experiencing domestic and family violence. It will give you information about what domestic and family violence is, recognising some of the signs of it, some do's and don'ts if you're hearing a disclosure, Um, It's got links to sermons and handbooks and diocesan or denominational resources. Um, We need to update that. So, you know, there'll be some bits of it that um, might have some gaps, but I I think that's a good starting point for people if they're trying to um, inform themselves about it. If you wanted to go a little bit deeper, I would say um, the course that I did for Ridley College in Melbourne um, it's called Responding to Domestic and Family Violence. It's a free course and you don't have to be um, a student or a minister uh, to undertake it. Um, and that's attempting to equip people to respond well. I mean, that's that's in the title. Um, and that could be um, something that you might find useful. Uh, we also published um, a handbook for survivors of domestic and family violence, particularly Christians who are seeking to uh, work out what life looks like um, after divorce or a contemplating separation. Uh, that's called Renew and it was published by Anglicare um, and can be found online as well. Um, there are also, I've discovered to my um, delight that there are lots of online handbooks that are now available and I won't name specifics because there are probably different ones for everyone's different context, but um, thankfully, I think people have really put some time and energy into resourcing the church for this. So there are a lot, a lot of great resources out there if people want to look them up. But I would, I would just suggest starting um, looking for a domestic and family violence handbook that has either been written for your denomination or your local area 
um, and use that use that as a guide. Thank you, Erica. And thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an illuminating and helpful conversation. Thanks. Great to be with you.